Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and today's guest is Nikki Britton. Now, I love Nikki Britton. I think she's a powerhouse stand-up comedian. She has a new Audible series that is out this week and uh, you can also catch her old uh, stand-up show ABC Comedy Presents Once Bitten, which is an absolute corker and we talk a little bit about that. In this episode, I recommend you just go uh, to a website or, you know, to a Facebook or Instagram, to a socials, look up Nikki Britton, follow Nikki Britton, get involved in Nikki Britton, because I'm definitely going to have Nikki Britton back on this podcast, because during these times, uh, obviously, as you know, all the interviews have been recorded down the line, um, you know, because of the changed circumstance in the world, and that has been not too bad, to be honest. I think... uh, it's been a lot easier than, mostly a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, the guests have still come with great intimacy and revelation in the episodes, and we have not been plagued by too many technical difficulties. There have been two major exceptions to that. Uh, one is an episode with Steen Raskopoulos, which we got about 18 minutes into, and after about the 18th time that it dropped out, uh, we had to abandon all hope ye who enter here. So at some stage in the future, I will circle back and Steen and I will have another go at uh, doing an episode of Velocity. And then there was this one with Nikki Britton. I think what you're about to hear, you won't know this because uh, Podcast Mike, the brilliant Podcast Mike, does an incredible job producing this show. And he has done a pretty incredible job patching this interview all together so it goes a lot more smoothly than it did on the day. I think we stopped between eight and ten times as various things went wrong various times and uh, the episode does stop incredibly abruptly Uh, so at the end of the show you'll hear uh, it just stop that's just because uh, the audio quality got so bad that we just uh, could not use anything after that Um, there are times where podcast mics had to do a lot of tweaking in this one to make it all fit together if it occasionally feels like there's bits missing that's probably because there's bits missing (laughs) Um, but I think uh, Mike said that he's he's happy with how the episode has actually still come together despite the incredible challenges that Nikki and I faced on the day trying to get it recorded and I think you'll if you have listened to this one you'll realize uh, how excellent Nikki's story is how excellently she tells it and how important it was for me to still put this episode up and how important it will be for me to have Nikki back at another stage. Uh, you can subscribe to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy. That's where we get the money to pay Podcast Mike, and he put in some extra hours definitely on this episode. Uh, so if you want to support the podcast and you like the podcast, then go to patreon.com slash philosophy. Donate for as little as a dollar per month. We are very close to the 5000 per month mark. So I put out two new episodes last week. Uh, No catch-up episodes at the moment, just because we had a backlog of originals, but uh, last week there was Pete Murray and uh, Broden Kelly from Auntie Donna, two separate episodes, Uh, Nikki Britton today, and I think, uh, particularly if we can get over 5,000 in this next week, I will put out another brand new episode this week with a huge Australian comedy star who has not been on the show before and doesn't do a lot of podcasts, so... 
it would be very exciting uh, for that episode as well. So come to the Patreon page, patreon.com slash philosophy and support us there. Thanks to James Fosdyke, who does all the original art, as always, for these episodes. And you can find our other podcasts at tofop.com. There's tofop, there's fofop, and uh, there is the uh, Two Guys, One Cup, our AFL-adjacent podcast. No new episodes since Grand Final Day, but we are going to try to find some time to squeeze one in at some stage and uh, only five episodes of Gruen, my TV show, left uh, for the year. So if you have not checked that out yet, ABC iView is the place to catch up on the previous episodes or 8.30 on a Wednesday night on the ABC. All right, there you go. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Nikki Britt. Welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and joining me on today's show, someone I just did 10 minutes of the show with, let's be honest, you can see behind the curtain. And then we had a technical problem, which is emblemic of these modern times. So look, it's never a surprise when I ask this question regardless, because I'm normally staring at the person I'm asking it of, but it is the convention for how the show starts. So I ask you this question. And by the way, there is no requirement, dear guests, for you to answer this question the same way as you did. You can answer it exactly the same way as you did previously, or you could just go in a completely different direction. Who fucking knows? But I will ask you this. Who are you? Um, I am Nikki Britton, and I <laughs> am very happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Nikki Britton, who's very happy to be here. <laughs> I appreciate that you're still happy to be here after the, uh, well, we're a half an hour into our allotted time and we're, we're restarting. We just went, you know what, much like the world itself, we've had an etch-a-sketch moment. Let's just uh, have a blank slate and start rebuilding from here. So uh, welcome to the podcast for the first time and also welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate that. <laughs> now, it's I'm so glad you got me back for a second time. That's really nice. Nikki Britton, her second appearance on her first podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> the first time you answered it, you said your name is Nikki Britton and then you paused and I'm going to say what you said the first time. Sure. You said, I'm an optimist, I'm an Aries, and if we're going to go to profession, I'm a stand-up comedian. And uh, which makes me think, let's start this time with your philosophy. We didn't do that last time, but this podcast, I ask people if they have a philosophy. Mm -hmm. And when you start by saying that you're optimistic, it immediately begs the question, okay, what's your philosophy? I want to know if you have a life philosophy. Do you have one? (laughs) I've, um, I think I've got a few. Uh, but okay, good. They're like they're embarrassingly close to some kind of meme you're gonna see on the internet with a beautiful sunset in the background. But I think um, one that distills it as much as it possibly can is be silly, be honest, be kind, and um, and then the other one is uh, uh, seek the wisdom of the ages, but look at the world through the eyes of a child. And I feel like they they actually kind of are similar. But they're both very, they're very motivational mantra vibes, aren't they? I have absolutely no problem with that. I literally have a podcast great, where great. I ask people what their life philosophy is, and then we <laughs> do a picture of you, and we have a little like quote underneath. We are 
essentially three months away from having philosophy pillows that people can use for inspiration <laughs> around their house. So you're right in the zone for me. So what, Excellent. What, break them down a little though for me. When you say that you respond to them and they're basically the same thing, what is that same thing? What do they practically mean for you in the way that you live your life? What is it about those messages that you respond to? I think that there is, I think they both talk about um, a presence and a depth in acknowledging the human condition and this experience that we're all having on this earth, in this realm. Um, so it's something that feels deeply grounded but then also something that's very irreverent and light and playful and um, delightful in the way that you approach life. So, um, yeah, be silly, be honest, be kind. It's, there's a, a level of um, accountability and, and m- morality in that, I think. But it's also uh, there's space for play and space for irreverence and, yeah, seek the wisdom of the ages but look at the world through the eyes of a child has a similar thing that there is you should always still find wonder and possibility and beauty in things um but you know also maybe try and understand as much as you can about this lovely world and and try and pass that wisdom on to other people as well uh, so let's start with silly honest kind okay sure I like this. Don't don't start doubting yourself. This is all good stuff. So let's start with silly, honest, kind. Of the three, yeah, which comes most easily to you, and which is the hardest of those three for you to achieve? I reckon honesty probably comes easiest, maybe to a fault. Um, yeah, always, always <laughs> deeply honest. Um, probably, yeah, an oversharer is definitely how I describe myself. And uh, just also terrified of being caught out on a lie a lot of the time. Um, used to have a nightmare. I don't know if you ever had this nightmare where I had committed a murder and it was an accidental murder. I didn't mean to murder anyone. Mm-hmm. But then I was on the run and all I wanted to do was say, oh, I murdered the person. But also I could, there was consequence to that as well. Um, so that was a real terror that I always used to have of not being honest um I think I think kindness comes quite inherently but I also think that sometimes I forget to be kind to myself and I think I forget to be kind um it's easy to sometimes not acknowledge when you're in fear and when the world feels out of your control it's easy to lump people or or situations or uh, into somewhere where, you know, there's an otherness and they are someone that I can rage at or I can be, you know, frustrated with um, rather than find the kindness within that. So I think that's something that, you know, depending on the mood on the day is one that's less easy. and But also silliness, I feel... Look, I've really chosen three things that come fairly naturally to me, if I'm honest, but silliness. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. It means you have a life philosophy that you can actually that's live. True. I mean, that's a very practical choice yeah. you've made. Um, yeah, silliness is pretty close to the surface most of the time. 
as well. Yeah, I mean, that it's the equivalent of me saying um, my life philosophy is have good conversations but make sure they're always <laughs> recorded, basically. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so then let's move on then to, uh, you know, the wisdom of the ages. Yes. But combined with seeing the world through a child's eyes. Yeah. And I, I love this. I think this is, you know, really a fantastic balance, you know. It's a, a yin and a yang. It's a top deck chocolate. You <laughs> have found some balance in the force here because respect, you know, those who've come before and the mistakes and triumphs that have been made before you understand that, you know, there have been people who have been there and done it before, but at the same time, don't just see what has been been and mm. done before. See the world, you know, through the eyes of a child. And so, what does that? What does that specifically? I get a picture in my head of what that would mean to me, but what does it specifically mean to you? Um. Well, yeah. In the <laughs> in the ill-fated previous ten-minute uh, recording we made, um, I talked a little bit about certainty and possibility and I feel like kids I mean you know when you see a kid look up at fireworks or you know see a whale in the wild or um whatever it is that just blows their absolute mind and they sort of there's a description I can't remember who I'm going to quote here but a description of a, a child's eyes like cups full of wonder just looking at the world and all the possibilities and the beauty. And um, that's something that I think that we we lose. We, it kind of gets sanded off. Our edges get sanded off in terms of the way that we can see possibility and be flexible and malleable in the face of changing circumstances. Um, but I think, it, you know, kids are inventive and innovative and, um, you know, kids can see the wonder and the magic in the world. I think it's very sad to lose that as you get older. And and like I said, as wisdom comes and knowledge comes, um, that's a wonderful thing as well. And I think that we should never stop learning. I think once you stop learning, I mean, that's it. No, nice curtains. That'll do. I think that's what life is about learning and growing and um, connecting. So... Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's it's both ends of an elastic band for me, just sort of stretching stretching yourself at the, to those two ends of the spectrum of existence. So you have first-hand experience of seeing the world through the eyes of a child because you've I've actually been a child. Worked, you know, in a situation. Well, because you child. were a child once. I was also a child. It's what we've had in common. We often talk about it backstage at gigs. You know, it's funny that you talk about being a child because I also at one stage it's, was a child. It's a thing. It's amazing. And yeah, everyone in the yeah. audience was a child. This is so that's relatable, it, that's this it. material. It's that relatable gear that's going to go across every time. That's why we do it. It's <laughs> a deal with breathing, guys. You guys like breathing? So. <laughs> I well no so but you've worked like with sick people in like yeah. hospitals right yeah so I've done I mean <laughs> it's been a very colourful life really um but yeah amongst a lot of things I I worked I, I don't know that I can say the people that I worked for but okay, they sure. they go into hospitals and um, entertain sick kids. To, to varying degrees. Obviously, it's a children's hospital, so it's, um, you know, from very, very sick 
potentially terminal kids to, uh, you know, someone who's broken a toe and is having a bad day. And I think, again, in the ill-fated previous record, we were talking about the relativity of, of pain and all the feelings that everyone's having at the moment. And you might be, you know, someone who from a very, very privileged situation and still feel trapped and fucked off and um, disappointed about the state of the world at the moment and that's absolutely valid. But, yeah, um, I did work with kids for 11 years in that setting and uh, that was probably the most um, humbling honour of my life, I think. So do do you feel like it changed you as a person? Because I imagine just being around kids in these... Yeah, situations that no kid should have to be in, even yeah. if it is a broken toe. When you're a kid, <laughs> having a broken toe is still a pretty big oh, deal. But obviously totally. some of these kids had much worse deals going on in their lives than a broken toe. And mm. at an age in their lives where, you know, no one deserves those things, but particularly at that age to be dealing with those terrible things must yeah. be, you know, in equal parts you know, sort of heartbreaking and challenging, but obviously you're there also to raise the spirit. So I'm sure that there is a lot of very heartwarming aspects to the job as well. But how do you feel it, you know, changed you as a person? Um, I think, well, interestingly, I sought this job out. So I, um, Mm. when I was little, my sister was, still is a a very bad asthmatic, although she's, she's fine now. Um, and she would very regularly, every few months, be taken in an ambulance off to hospital in the middle of the night. And my life was, I was very lucky in many ways to have so many things, but stability and um, it did, didn't feel like it was something that I could really rely on as a kid. And so I was the sibling of a, of a really sick kid and I remember walking through the halls of the hospital back then when mum and dad were understandably consumed with other stuff and my sister, you know, she she clinically died four times and they brought her back and it was a very tumultuous life that they were living. And I just remembered wanting a friend in that moment. And then um, I grew up and realised that there was this charity doing this amazing thing where they were being a friend to kids in hospital and siblings of kids in hospital. And I was like, oh, I want to do that. And so it's a little bit of an about, um, you know, a roundabout way that I called them when I was about 16 and said, how do I do this? And they said, oh, we take actors and performers. And I'd always wanted to do that anyway. But um, that's kind of the reason I went to to drama school and studied acting and theatre. And um, then I did that for 11 years and and... Yeah, I, I'd always wanted to do that. But I think um, you can never understand really, and I could try and tell you all the stories of the world, but I don't think you can ever really understand um, the profundity of what that job can give you. And it's something, oh, it's it will it's the proudest. I think it'll be the probably always the thing that I'm the most proud of in my life, I think. And it's taught me, I mean... Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Even, I don't even know where to start. We better edit this bit where she just lost all her words. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, you're talking about yeah. eleven years, like, and you know, I imagine 
you know, daily and weekly oh, profound experiences mo- moment sometimes. to moment. So, yeah. of course, the idea that that you are overwhelmed <laughs> by this. And when you say profound, I mean, I'm sure profoundly, you know, life-affirming, profoundly life-changing, mm. profoundly dispiriting, profoundly emotionally, you know, mm. tough to take home from some days, I imagine. I, 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 I mean, again, I'm only speculating, but I can only imagine it would have been all of those things. Yeah. A lot of people would always say, oh, my God, how do you do that? Like, how do you do it? And it became... This probably sounds terribly altruistic. Um, I don't mean it to, but it, it it comes to the point of how how do you not? I think that I deal with anxiety, and I have plenty of it, but I think I deal with it through action and through being a part of the solution. And I might not even know what that solution is, but yet, but if I can be part of something that is creating something better for someone. Um, And that's what it was. I think, you know, we would go and I was, I mean, I would, we'd do all sorts of things. I mean, there were days where I would play, you know, for eight hours with a bunch of kids who were just in there because they were visiting their mate who had their tonsils out and that's totally fine. And then there were days where, um, you know, we knew a little kid wasn't going to make it to Christmas and so we would throw the most extraordinary Christmas party with all the decorations and the presents and um, we would be able to give that that moment and that joy to families and that was extraordinary. And there was, um, yeah, I mean, we we dressed up as a superhero, not a superhero you probably are aware of, but... Uh, within the charity, there was a mythology of a superhero from a different planet, and essentially our super our superpower was being a super best friend. So, um, you know, we were we were able to connect with these kids and lighten their day. I mean, you know, life in hospital for a kid is just so overwhelmingly different, and um, they're forced to be more mature than they should be. And so we were able to bring back the irreverence and the play and all of that stuff that I was talking about in my philosophy before. Um, and, yeah, being that character, I think, uh, changed me as a person. I guess there's a part of me that hopes to bring that character to conversations, interactions that I have with people. And that, you know, the mythology and the symbolism of that character meant that I was, you know, I was present with um, four little kids as they passed away and knowing that they got to hold a superhero's hand as they looked into this thing that was so terrifying for for them and for their families and um, that is, I mean, I truly, I don't think... I really have the words to explain what that's like. It's just just deeply humbling and uh, yeah, very magic, something that I'll that I'll treasure for the rest of my life. And it teaches you real quick about boundaries as well. <laughs> what you can change and what you can't change and 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 yeah, what you can try forever to continue to make better even if you don't see a solution in your lifetime. Does that answer the question? <laughs> so, thank you. Yeah, absolutely it did. It was amazing. And I could tell, you know, as you kind of struggled with 
putting into words what it is that you wanted to say. I appreciated <laughs> that you kept struggling with it and, you know, gave us a, an insight into it because it must be incredibly profound. I was going to ask you another question, but I'm going to circle back on that. I think let's have some fun for yeah. a bit. Let's have a little change of pace. And I'm, we'll, I'm good. We'll have I'm some also fun. like, this is, this is fine. I know. But, <laughs> yeah, I know. But let's, like, we, we're only officially 19 minutes in but of course for us for us we're at the 40 or 50 where it normally does get sure, a bit teary sure. but for the listeners we've only you know we're only 20 minutes sorry, in so guys, let's have a little sorry here come the gas no it's good here it's what people come it's in. what people come here for <laughs> nikki it's good it's all fine uh but i i want to ask you about stand-up yeah. so Performing to kids, like into like stand-up comedy. Yeah. I always, when I have a stand-up comedian on, once bitten, once bitten is that the name of your yeah, show? The last show yeah, yeah. The, once bitten, people can listen to on ABC Comedy. Yeah. Is that what the app ABC, is called? Uh, ABC Listen is the app. ABC Comedy Presents is the yeah. program. Yeah. Okay, and so uh, it's a great show and um, oh, super thanks, funny. Man. So many jokes. Like that's. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot else about that show that's really good. But from my perspective, when I was listening to it, I was like, "There's a lot of jokes in this show. I really like how many <laughs> jokes there are. There's just a heap of punchlines. It's a super funny show." Um, thanks. Man. Tell me about your you know stand up comedy origin story. Where did it all start for you? Yeah, well, I, um, like I said, I went to acting school and I went down that path and I took myself terribly seriously for a good chunk of time and thought, no, I'm, I'm going to be a Shakespearean actress and I'll do all the classics on stage. And, um, well, that, that's absolutely <laughs> was never going to be what happened. Um, and I kept getting cast in these comedy roles and I was like, oh, come on, don't you know I've got the, the drama chops? But I, um, I mean, you know, I did that and then really it was after I left acting school, a good few years afterwards, and I'd just, to be honest, get drunk and tell stories and muck around and a friend at a barbecue said, you should you should try stand-up. You've always told these hilarious stories. And I said, oh, yeah, okay, sure. I'm never going to do stand-up. And um, she went away and she signed me up for an open mic competition and didn't tell me and then I just got an email um, confirming my acceptance into this into the Royal Comedy Competition, and um, that <laughs> I said, okay, sure, you live once, let's give this a shot, and then that went well, and then things kind of kept going well, and enough people saw me and kept booking me, and I think I I love stand up, and it, you know, acting in this country is not an easy career to p pursue and it's not even an easy skill to keep up given the amount of work that's available for everyone um but stand-up was something that I could go and I could do every night and I could hone and it brought in writing and you know a point of view I was able to kind of you know get the talking stick and say things on stage that I did care about that I felt like needed to be spoken about and um yeah, I just kind of fell in love with it. I feel like, yeah, I feel like acting was my wife and stand-up was my mistress, but then, like, I divorced acting a bit and then just went with my mm. mistress. But 
But my wife and I still have a good relationship. Like it was an amicable breakup. Right. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> Acting, seeing other yeah. people too. They're fine. <laughs> yeah, they're okay. Acting, they're seeing okay. a Hemsworth yeah, exactly. now. They're like, they're cool. <laughs> They've moved on. But I'm very happy, you know, like you, if, if acting and I want to get back together, that's okay. Mm. Let's do that again. Um, Reid, if anyone wants to give me an acting job, I'm open to it. But, um, yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of what, happened and I feel like stand up I feel like I don't know I just look at life as if you're happy to walk away from something I would hate to walk away from stand up I love doing it but if someone turned around tomorrow and said soz mate you've got to you've got to move to Peru and um you know work saving indigenous species there I'd be like okay all right and I think um, <laughs> I think there's, I think that's what's kept me healthy in stand up, is you know having many fingers in many pies and many sort of options in life and and a innate curiosity and hunger to experience everything in life and um, that both helps stand up and also keeps you a little bit sane when. Uh, Stand-up can become so consuming. It can be. It can be all-consuming. Like one of my observations about, I mean, the COVID meant it was the first Melbourne Comedy Festival I didn't do in 25 years. So for a quarter of a century, every single year for the last quarter of a century, for over half of my life, I have been on that cycle of write a show, get a show together, perform a show in at least Melbourne, but normally tour yeah. for six months, write a new show, which means that if you talk about all-consuming, I have done other things, but there has never been a time in my life where I haven't been doing those other things thinking I've got to do that gig on the weekend or I've got to write yes. that new material for next year's show. It is yeah. all-consuming. And then this thing that was all-consuming in my life was mm. taken away. And not just taken away for this year, I'm – pretty much resigned to the fact that I won't be able to get back to doing what I do, you know, big rooms, lots of people touring from state to state and country to country till a minimum of 2022. And it might actually be further away than that, which means for the first time, probably in the last quarter of a century, probably the first time since I started doing stand-up comedy, my life can't be consumed by stand-up comedy. And it's quite revealing to me you know what has been good about that what has been bad about that what I've missed what I haven't missed sometimes what I haven't missed is more scary than what I have missed you know like I'm like oh well I haven't missed that at all you know (laughs) (laughs) Um, and are you relieved do you feel relieved like what's the I mean it probably changes day to day the feeling it does but I As long as I get a chance to do it again at some stage, I think at the moment I feel mostly comfortable and relieved. I'm I'm not one of those people who is desperate to do some socially modified gig just to get on the stage or to be doing Zoom shows just to be performing. That... In fact, I have no desire to do that. And it's not a judgment on those things, but it's just been a real revelation that that isn't what you know, motivates me or what it is that I enjoy about the process of doing it. So that's been very interesting. Yeah, I'm exactly the same. I'm so grateful for any gig, whether that be on Zoom or wherever, I'm grateful for them. But there is something about being, you know, it's, it's the magic of assembly, of having a group of people in a room sharing energy 
sharing an idea, it's there's something that really can't be recreated um, in any of those if any of those gigs. In fact, Zoom <laughs> Zoom gigs so often you it it's like it's like so much foreplay with no orgasm or like <laughs> you know, you just like oh god. <laughs> Well, it should have. It, this should have. This should have totally resulted in a massive jizz at this point. Sorry, man. This normally gets me off. I don't know what's happening. <laughs> totally, totally. Just hours of foreplay, and then just a flaccid wang. Just like, oh, how did what? How? This no. This has never happened. I don't have a wang. I don't know. Well, I think here's what my observation yeah. is. Like particularly of, and I think it's very evident to anyone who has listened to your special, is that. You're a performer that definitely feeds off the energy of the audience. You have a high energy in your performance itself, but also you are absolutely in your element when you're at full speed and the audience is in at full speed with you, you know, where they're laughing so hard and you're not giving them the opportunity to <laughs> stop laughing at the last joke before you're banging them down with the next joke and the next joke. And I think that that style of comedy needs an audience you're a big wave surfer and suddenly you're trying to surf in the paddle pool yeah paddle pool she's not giving me what i want (laughs) (laughs) that is so kind thanks will anderson i've got all gooey in the stomach at that sweet little uh assessment thanks babe so talk to me about the relationship between a stand-up comedy performer and the audience because it's something i've been thinking about a lot obviously Mm. during this time yeah uh what are your observations of you know, when you're on stage, what the audience means to the performance? Oh, well, I've realised that comedy itself doesn't exist in a performer and it doesn't exist in the audience, but it actually exists in the crackling space between them. It's the, it's this perfect little bubble in between. And, um, you know, jokes are fine. Jokes are jokes. Jokes can be written down and typed out. And, but the delivery, the connection from one human to another... Um, you know, and it's not, (laughs) again, only on this podcast will I say these crazy things like this, but it's like that is, um, it's a feeling that is being directed at someone through the medium of words. And for me, that feeling is love and wanting to ignite pure joy in people and that's uh, it's you know like it's like (laughs) a little starburst that goes from my chest into their chest that's how I visualize what's happening and um and that is very difficult on zoom and uh especially when you can't hear or reach out to people I think um yeah my audiences are I I fucking love them I love them. I even love when they, you know, heckle or drop a glass. It's it's all a gift. Like in the live medium, that's a gift. That's something that unites us even more as a group of people. Like, you know, we were talking before about um, a pandemic or, or childhood, childhood being something that everyone's experienced. So you can riff on that and there's a relatability where people go, oh, yeah, oh, that happened to me when I was a kid. But um, – gathering a group of people together and something happening in that moment. And you're so beautiful at this. You are so brilliant at writing an audience and taking a gift from an audience member and using that 
to its fullest potential. But that is the beauty of live performance is being alive to it and um, and having something that exists only in this moment with this with this group of people. And I think it, I mean, yeah, I think it takes a l- profound sensitivity to be really present with a, with an audience, um, which I think is probably why, you know, a really great show can fill you up in so many ways and drain you in so many others. <laughs> um, but, yeah, there's, it's, it's something about the energy transfer between people and, um, yeah, I... I I love, I just, I love audiences. So, so you spoke earlier about getting into stand-up and, you know, talking about things that you care about and things that ne- you felt mm-hmm. needed to be said. So I'm going to ask you just that question. What do you care about and what do you think needs to be said? Do you know what? I'll open this by saying at Home Bake 2011 maybe, you and I were in a tent backstage and I'd been doing stand-up for all of five minutes and um, not even just that gig of five minutes, quite literally, like I've barely done stand-up. And you said, uh, don't waste your opportunity to talk to a group of people. Like, make it mean something. Make it, you know, say something that you really believe in. And I always took that. I always remembered that. And that's kind of informed that philosophy that I have about, um, you know, talking about using it to talk, have a platform to say, oh, my God, please edit me to sound smarter than I am. There's a lot of garbled bullshit here. This is the the philosophy podcast, the home of garbled (laughs) bullshit. If people don't like garbled bullshit, they're already not listening to a podcast that I'm involved with. It turns out that, like, not everything that I drop is these incredible bon mots of wisdom backstage at fucking home back. (laughs) Look, here's what I will say about that is I do believe in that, which is, yeah, I, I often have to remind myself of they're here to listen to what you have to say. So you might as well have something to say. I think that that is very important. So now I want to know with that proviso, what is it that you want to say? Because having something important to say doesn't mean big I important, that you have to be talking about freeing the refugees or, you know, some – like it doesn't doesn't mean capital I important. It means something that you feel like you need to communicate, a truth about yourself or about how you see the world that you think you are in a unique position to communicate to a group of people. So for you – all I'm asking is for you what's important to talk about. Um, I think – it's important, okay, I think it's important to talk about f- shame for me. Um, I think, like, using the the vessel, I keep saying vessel, I don't think it's the right word. Like, Trojan horse, yeah. Using the mm-hmm. Trojan horse of... I mean, a Trojan, Trojan horse is a vessel. I guess kind. it is, yeah. But... So you're, you're right, it's just a bigger, <laughs> horsier, wooden vessel. <laughs> It's a more specific image in my brain. Um, <laughs> using the Trojan horse of a story that has happened to me that is full of shame and should absolutely be something that is forgotten and pushed away and never spoken about again and exists in a very dark corner of your soul somewhere. I find great delight in sharing those stories on stage with people in a filterless fashion and... Um, in doing that, kind of casting a light on how ridiculous it is that we feel shame about 
things about ourselves and, and things we've said or done that everyone does and says and feels and is. And um, I feel like there's obviously, again, that relatability. People are laughing because they understand it, but there is a release in people being told that that's okay and that they're not alone and um yeah i i i talk a lot about obviously being a woman and my point of view is a woman's point of view and there is so much that hasn't been uh really kind of i mean researched and and investigated to be honest but beyond that you know there's still so many so much etiquette and so many you know taboos in female sexuality female desire the way women um operate these kind of layers of expectation and societal norm that um is placed upon women and and i think that's a really fun place to play in for me especially this moment in time um and obviously women have spoken about that for years gone by but I feel like that is something that I really enjoy playing with. And I enjoy seeing women younger than me hear me talk about, you know, a dick, describing a dick as a just a mollusk without a shell on stage in front of their male friends and having a moment where they recognise this voice that they've had in themselves that they haven't felt it appropriate to to speak out loud. And... um. And that slight kind of power shift in a room. And I like playing with that. And and I fucking love men. I bloody love men. I love men to a fault. But it is very nice to speak from a, a female point of view and have that accessible to all all genders and and everyone. But um yeah, just just speak from that that place. About shame. It did occur it did occur to me when I was listening to your special that uh um, when you describe the dick as, as many things, including a mollusk without a shell, but as many things, that it is kind of revolutionary because, of course, we know that women have had these conversations behind our back, mm. but our entire society is set up in a way that you're not allowed to mention the mollusk without a shell in the room. Yeah. You know, it's been there the whole time. Yeah. And essentially, I think the entire patriarchy has been constructed <laughs> so that men would have power and women wouldn't be able to bring up our bad-looking junk. So it's- it does, it feels small, but also revelatory you know rebellious there is it's more than just a dick joke it is a joke about the idea that this is not something that people have been able to joke about previous to this that's exactly right and i think you know it's very easy to say women you know female comedians talk about sex or whatever and for so long i really kind of railed against that and was like no i don't want to be the sex comic or i don't want to be the filthy comic but i do feel like um Hopefully, I'm thinking things through enough to to say, you know, it's not just about a dick. It's not just a dick joke. It's the fact that dick and balls can equate to worth in a man and virility and status. And that is just so outrageous to me when it looks like an absolute, like there's been a catastrophe at the butcher. Like for us to look at that, that's bonkers for, to think that that little dangler in at the front of your body is equating to you know how successful you should be in the world or how um it just seems like an archaic hangover from obviously biology but but just 
it's just foolish. It just feels so silly now. And it's um, so silly and so casually in our language and our understanding yeah. of the world. You know, you don't have the balls to do that. You know, that guy must have giant balls. He's yep. got real big, big, big dick energy. Yeah. It's this mythology that, you know, somehow the size of your genitals is commensurate to, you know, your confidence or worth or understanding yeah. of the world. Yeah. Um, and that, and, and that, you know, women don't barely have genitals. <laughs> women have genitals <laughs> in, you know. It, well, you've got an, you've got an innie and we've got an outie. Well, That's how it works. Yours is all yeah. hidden away. And, and women's <laughs> genitals. Ours is out on display. <laughs> and women's genitals are mostly for the satisfaction of men or to produce a baby. And that's, you know, they're not necessary. They're not funny. They're not, you know, all these things that we allow male genitals to be. They're, you know, they are funny. They are status symbols. We know exactly how they work. They can be up and down and hard and soft. And like, you know, we have, we've, we've investigated every possible aspect of that. And then, um, you know, to talk about female genitals is still like, oh, uh, no, oh, no, thanks. Yucky. No, don't. Or, you know, and there's shame. Immediately, there is a, a shame for women to talk about that. And the fucking desire that those genitals surge through our body sometimes. Like that, even female desire like that is, um, yeah, it's still something that we haven't investigated. And so I think that that is, uh, like you say, it's, it's small, it's tiny, but it does feel revelatory at this moment in history. And um, that that might change. Okay, so I hope so it does. that that is definitely one thing. And so, sex and shame sex and is shame. one thing. Uh, so shame also is another theme in the show. Mm. You know, more towards the end of the show, when you talk about you know perhaps you know when you were a teenager and shame you felt around the way you presented in the world. Can we talk about that without wanting to spoil yeah, your, no, your show? That's fine. If, if people don't want spoilers for the show, here's what I'd recommend. Stop this podcast <laughs> yeah. right now for a minute. Go and listen to Once Bitten and then you can come back and know what happens at the end. But you talk about, you know, like being, uh, you know, the era you grew up in, yeah. the, the supermodels and magazines of the time were full of the the posh spices and the Kate yeah. Mosses of the world and the effect that that ended Those up having Skinny on 90s. You. Um, yeah, it was, I mean, do you know, I was thinking the other day about, I see young women now, even five or 10 years younger than me, and they embrace their bodies and they embrace, um, their fluidity of sexuality and they, you know, there's so much positivity now for bodies and, and the female form. And I... Love it. I, I love it. I think it's extraordinary and it's so great, which is why I think that, you know, possibly and hopefully my comedy is going to be obsolete or at least this aspect of it will be obsolete um, in time. But I, oh, mate, I've done the work. I have looked at my worth and I've found and I've found my body beautiful and I've looked on it at a cellular level and appreciated the science involved in my body and I... I think that until the day I die, there will be some teeny tiny little uh, wedge in my brain that will still equate the way my body looks with my self-worth or my ability to be loved. And um, I guess, you know, it's like anyone who has 
a mental health weakness or a, you know, it's like a rolled ankle. You're not going to, don't test it. You know you've got that dicky left ankle. Let's not go roller skating, uh, you know, when it's still healing. So, um, yeah, it's something that I'm aware of, but it's something that I see in younger generations that they are, I don't think it's going to be even close to the issue that it was for my generation, and that's really wonderful. But, I, I, you know, I mean, the, the story, again, spoilers, but um, it touches a lot on eating disorders and... I, I had I struggled very very much with eating disorders and and um, the girls, it, almost every woman from my generation who walked out of that show, said something similar or they knew someone who knew someone. We were only ever like two degrees of separation away from someone who was dangerously involved, you know, dangerously suffering with eating disorders. And I've um, lost a few friends as well to that now, and it's. Uh, it's such a funny disease to talk about because it really is a disease of affluency in a way, you know? No one, no one in a developing country has got an eating disorder. Um, and so I, I, there's still so much I don't understand about it and, and will probably never understand about it, but um, I'm very grateful that we have role models uh, that, and, you know, a... a trend at the moment towards bodies that are realistic and beautiful and you know all the things that we were shamed away from blossoming into when I was young you you know one of the things I've noticed and so I'm 46 years old and so you know I've seen the progression from and look myself when I look there's plenty of material that I've done over the years that I would not do if I had my time over I have a deeper understanding of and I talked a bit about being an overweight kid and I feel like a lot of the material that I did around that did not have the empathy or sympathy towards weight that in in retrospect I would have yeah I would have done it differently I wouldn't do the same thing today and, you know, I think it probably there was probably people who heard those jokes that were meant to be self-deprecating that would have made them feel shameful about, you know, their own situation. And I have, you know, great regret about that, as well as a whole bunch of other jokes. I, I like that I am now a different person. And I realized this the other day and something you just said reminded me of it, which was that we do, we can change and you can also be proud of changing. You can rewire some of that stuff that you had no responsibility in teaching yourself in the first place. You can rewire it because not only would I not do those sort of jokes anymore, but I remember I was at the airport for the first time in five months the other day and there was a girl who's exactly what you were talking about. Someone of a younger generation who had like, a non, you know, a not, a not a Kate Moss, you know, mm. magazine presentation of what a woman is meant to look like, and she wasn't hiding it. She wasn't, you know, wearing clothes that disguised it or feeling some sort of shame around it. You've never, you could just tell from the way that she carried herself and dressed and whatever that she did not yeah. give a shit what you thought about her and her body. But the thing that I liked was not just that, but in that moment when I was thinking that. I was like, and by the way, what business yes. of yours is it what her body is like? Because there's a bit yeah. of you ingrained yeah. that you have the right to judge what other people's bodies Absolutely. are like. And that is dangerous programming. But 
it used to just be something that we inherently were just had an understanding that yeah. you were just allowed to judge somebody because they look different or that they presented in a different way. And I was very pleased <laughs> and look ashamed in some ways that it's taken me to 46 years old for that to be my natural thought in that situation. But also very pleased that my, my next thought in my brain was like, and by the way, even if whatever, it's none of your fucking business, mate. And I was yeah. like, oh, nice one, Hando. You've grown a little. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's like there are still many publications trying to tell Mm. us that we do have a right to judge women for what they look like. But um, it's, yeah, oh, man, isn't that lovely and freeing? And, and, I mean, there's more beauty and there's more possibility from that. I mean, it's such a... To say that this is what bodies should look like and this is what's beautiful, it's just such a scarcity. It's a it's a mindset of scarcity of like, well, if I'm not that, then I don't deserve love or I don't, you know, I'm not worthy of um, feeling beautiful or being valid in this world. And fuck me, there are so many bodies. And I'm not just talking skinny and bigger than skinny. I'm like, you know, people who have had amputations and people who have had... Tr- transplants and transfusions and you know all sorts of there is no less validity to these extraordinary people I feel like um you know everything probably that I've been through has given me a real appreciation of of life and and the way that we exist in this world and how um I don't know. I don't know why I was going to talk about euthanasia then. That's another bloody... This is the thing, I guess, I haven't come to... I struggle with euthanasia. I struggle with the concept of euthanasia. Not someone who is terminally ill and it's going to release them from a huge struggle. Um, I'm all for that. I think that that's an excellent thing. But I think, and possibly because, you know, I'd attempted to take my life in the past... I feel like there is – maybe I've just got like, you know, a doe-eyed view of life now that I've kind of feel like I've been giving a, given a second chance. But th- there is something so beautiful about bodies decaying and people approaching death or, or you know, minds not being as strong as they once were or um, – you know, I, I worked a lot with people with disabilities and varying um, varying degrees of ability and I just, I've learnt more from those people than I have any person who's, you know, walking straight with two arms and two legs and thinking with a brain that's at its full capacity. Um, and I don't know why I went off on that tangent, Will <laughs> No, I think, I mean, euthanasia is a really interesting topic because I have a friend... Um, a person who's previously been on this podcast, so I'm not uh, giving away any trade secrets here, a fellow by the name of Craig Coombs. If people haven't heard that interview, it is episode 100 of Philosophy, and uh, Craig is going to come back on the podcast too. But he was uh, told that he was terminally ill. It's got to be six or seven years ago Mm. now. And so he's lived an incredible amount of time you know, since he was given the news that his illnesses were terminal and he's managed to fit a lot of life into those years and see a lot of things that he never imagined he would see. But the pain of his body breaking down in so many different ways 
has been almost unbearable mm. for at least the last 12 months mm. plus. And so he has, he's in, uh, in Victoria where you can go through the process of euthanasia and it's quite an you know involved process. There's a lot of safety nets there. Like, you know, I think for the reasons that you're saying to make sure that this isn't an in the moment flippant decision mm. by somebody that it is for those who genuinely, you know, need a humane way to not deal with the pain anymore. And what I've noticed in him is like he, I think, and again, I don't want to speak out of school about, you know, but he's coming back on the podcast and I'm sure we're going to talk about all these things. And he talked about euthanasia last time he was on. So I, I don't think I'm giving away too much here that uh, he wouldn't mind. Cause we talk, we check in probably two or three times a week, you know, just how everything's yeah. going and how his latest procedure went and what his levels of yeah. pain are at. And in a very practical mm. way, we have a standing date that we are going to record another episode before he mm. dies. And we always have this, I mean, it's a fine understanding between the yeah. two of us. You know, we have this, you know, it's always like, he, you know, he's like, I'll let you know if we need to do it soon. And and so I've seen how positive the, the fact that he knows that when it gets too much that he has a humane way yeah. for it to end has given him, I think, at least another year of life. You know, the capacity to go, the, the capacity he knows that mm -hmm. it can end has given him at least another nine months, year of, yeah. you know, living his life. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Um, I think it's, I think that is, that's excellent. I think that part of euthanasia is excellent and I think it is something that, um, I think it, I've heard awful stories in my life of people who say, oh, well, you know, about people with disabilities or about people who've had accidents. Oh, well, better off though, you know, better off. They're better off mm -hmm. not. And and I have been at the, you know, I have spent time and had beautiful conversations and moments, you know, un unspoken, unverbal conversations with people who, God, they're, they're valid and they matter and they're worthy. And I think... Circling back to what you were saying about what fucking right is it of mine to to judge a person on their their body and and how they're presenting that body, and that's exactly right. What fucking right do we have? But also, if we could if we could move towards like what can we learn? What can we what what beauty and knowledge and wisdom can we get from this person's experience and this person's uniqueness and um and yeah, I think I just who fucking decided the worth of a human, you know? Let, when did we decide what that it's was? It's been an interesting time for it because we've actually seen the value that people put on the life of humans during Absolutely. what we're currently going through. Some people literally putting a value on human life. It is better to reopen the economy and lo lose a few old people mm. than it is. And look, you know, there are plenty of valid arguments for the ongoing ramifications of people in lockdown, losing their jobs, mental health struggles, kids not going to school. I think they're all legitimate things for us to talk about. And if we don't talk about them, uh, then the next you know, two, three, five, 10, 20 years are going to be filled with the ramifications of the things that we mm. didn't talk about. But it's also meant that some people have had a very pragmatic view of the value of, of human life through what we're going through. So, where are we at with that? Because we have an opportunity. We've knocked the house down and we have an opportunity to rebuild. That's that's how yeah, I'm looking at the yeah. current situation, right? So 
when we rebuild, we have the capacity to value human life differently if we want. Some of the things that we were told were impossible have been shown to be possible. The example that I bang on about all the time, but fuck it, it's my podcast and it's a good example, is we're told all the time that uh, we can't house the homeless, right? Can't house the homeless. Turns out we can. Turns out we can do it in a week if we need to get them off the street for pandemic purposes. So in the future, when people tell you that we don't have the capacity to do it, what they're actually telling you is that we don't value those human lives enough for us to do it. And we've seen it with ramifications with old people. The fact that the elderly have been disproportionately affected by this disease is not only the fact that it affects older people, but the fact that some of these people have been living in terrible conditions and they were living in terrible conditions well before this happened and those terrible conditions were not set up to adequately deal with a situation like we're going through and the reason is that we do not value those lives enough that's basically what we've been shown we don't value the lives of the elderly in in that way uh we are willing some people are willing to sacrifice them in fact for the Mm. sake of everybody else they've had their turn so when we rebuild society and we're putting values on human life what would you like to see Oh, um, um, I'd like to see us destroy the systems that were born of, uh, uh, yeah, I I think they're, they're born of fear and shame and scarcity and, um, I mean, the, for every reason we keep, if someone is getting more than another person because of a circumstance that has benefited them, that's not fair. That's not fair. So let's get rid of that. Um, I think, yeah, I, look, I mean, I'm certainly not someone who's, who's good at um, organising. I can just, I, I send out all my positive vibes and go, guys, wouldn't this be a great utopia to live in? And then I don't quite have <laughs> the practical knowledge. So I apologise to all of the people who are <laughs> making policies and setting oh, up. No, by the way, this is like, I mean, you, you do to your best capacity, to my best capacity, right? Like my best capacity is to just keep, Mentioning the fact that we can fix things. I can't actually fix anything. (laughs) Like all I can do is keep bringing up the fact that there are people who can fix everything and get them to fix everything. We're the the dreamers. That's our role. We're the dreamers. Um, Yeah, look, I would love to see, yeah, just the worth of human life across the board. I, um, oh, I did, I worked with the Wayside Chapel in, in Sydney on a project and, um, the Wayside Chapel work a lot with with people who are sleeping rough and the homeless community. And we, um, while I was doing that project, one of their beloved characters of that community passed away. And um, oh, I'm having a lot of trouble. Hey, ah, oh. well, it stopped. It stopped recording and then it started again. I think I'm just going to hope that things are going to keep going. Also, I was looking at that when you asked this question. So if my answer is not particularly succinct, 
I don't apologize. <laughs> it's okay. My phone beeped a couple of times okay. as well because uh, somebody who thought we were going to be done by now is now oh, messaging dear. me over and over. And I'm like, we're not done because we started half an hour late. Sorry. I'm just going to turn that off now that I've responded to that. That was a work all thing. Good. Uh, all right. So let's, yeah, so let's um, pick it up again. We'll, we'll just, it's okay. Podcast Mike can sort all that out thanks, for us. Everything's going to be Mike. fine. Um, okay. So the question was, moving forward, how do we create a world that acknowledges everyone's worth? Yeah. Let's make, how do we make how a better we, world? Uh, that's the question okay. I'm really asking. We've got a choice to make the same world we had before, a worse world than we had before, or a better world than we had before. There are three choices, and it's probably going to be a combination of those three, but I think that there are going to be other people who are concentrating on hard, on making it a worse world, making it a more unequal world, making it a world, you know, that isn't about everybody. There's going to be people concentrating very hard on getting things back to normal. And what they mean by normal is the way things were before we went into this. And in a lot of cases, those things weren't actually normal. Or there's the the dreamers new world, the better world that we come out of this current crisis and we use it to rebuild something better than we had before. I'm more interested in that third category. Like you said, we're the artists, we're the dreamers. So, you know, what's your dream? What would you like to see? I feel like there's been a lot, everyone who's made the systems that we live within, the structures that we live within at the moment, um, the people who have created that have uh, been usually at the benefiting end of those structures. I feel like there's been very little uh, listening going on, listening really to everyone involved, everyone who those structures affect. Um, and I feel like that's the, the only way I think to move forward is to actually pause. All right. So, um, okay. So let's, you know what? We're going to skip to the end and I apologize to everybody. We'll get Nikki back and we'll have a you know, detailed conversation. But in case this is only stuff that's recorded on Zoom, I still want to ask you these questions because these are, you know, some standard philosophy questions. What do you think happens when we die? Um, I think that there is, I think our body stops working. <laughs> profound uh but from all of the from everything i know about a body and i love the human body and i'm certainly not a doctor but i have really researched a lot about it um we're not the sum of our hearts and our brains you know like those two organs as brilliant and extraordinary as they are and the amount that we don't know about the brain um it's possible that a spirit or a soul or uh, lives somewhere within the brain and within the body and within this structure that we are in. But I just am not sold. I just feel like, I feel like something else happens and I feel like I've been at several ends of lives now and there's something, the energy goes somewhere. And I'm, I'm not a spiritual person at all. I mean, no, that's a lie. I'm very spiritual. I'm not religious in any way. Um, so I don't think it necessarily goes into heaven or hell, but I think that it exists in this realm that we're in, in some capacity. 
there's an there's something we don't understand yet. There's a spirit or a soul, something that we don't understand yet that remains remains in this realm to some degree. I don't know if there's a parallel universe that those people are existing in their complete form somewhere else, but here I think that there is an energy and maybe that energy is something that is like a vapour that latches on to the people that still exist in this realm and it's like an effect that the life of the person who's passed away continues to have on the person who remains because, you know, we are, we're, we're energetic beings and we pass energy between each other and that's, that is science. There is science to suggest that there is an energetic force that can extend beyond a human body and affect the molecules, atoms of, of other beings. So th- it's that thing, it's that energy force that I don't believe perishes completely when we die. When you die... And yes. what would it, what is it that you would like people to remember of you? Not what will they, but what would you like them to say when you're gone to remember about you? Um, I guess she was silly, she was honest, she was kind. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short speech, guys, but uh, I think we'll all agree. She was silly, she was honest, she was kind. Anyway, the buffet's free. Get up the <laughs> I think that I would like um I would like for people to be better off from having known me. I I would like for the world to be some way in some tiny teeny minor way to have been lifted and lightened by my existence here on earth. And I think um yeah, it's a funny thing. It's such a funny thing because, like, I'm 37 and single and childless and I think a lot of people around me are reaching for what their subconscious believes is a legacy in having children or, you know, making sure that something remains. And um, and I've never felt the urge to have my own kids. I, I actually can't have – I can't um, – hold a baby during pregnancy I could create one it's a whole other conversation but that is never something that I've wanted to do in that way but I hope that there is some legacy that I leave that yeah lightens the world I hope my funeral is quite irreverent I think irreverence is something very very different I think some people look at irreverence and think insensitivity Um, But I think irreverence is acknowledging all of the parts of this emotional landscape of the moment that we're in and still choosing to remain light and playful within that. And I hope, you know, the best, the best comedy does that, I think. And, um, and I hope that my funeral is, is like that. I have a magic wand and I can grant you the ability to do anything in the world. Any skill. You don't have to do your 10,000 hours to learn how to do it. You just have that skill. What skill would you love to have? I would love to be able to speak every language in the world, including every animal, being able to communicate with every animal in the world and speak every language. I have... Like sometimes I lie awake at night thinking, ah, oh, there's so many conversations I'm never going to get to have. 
people I can't talk to because I'm such a dumb dumb. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's absolutely what I do. And like, oh, talk to animals, man. That'd be heaven. Uh, final question. I have a time machine. I have one round trip. It has to be a round trip. I need the machine back so I can offer it to other guests on the podcast. You can go to any place in history, any place in the future. You can go to a point in your own life or just to a random point in, you know, in, in the world. I, there is no restrictions on where you can go on this time machine, but it has to be a return trip. Where would you like to go? Can I send the machine back without me in it? Or do I have to come back? Sure. No, no one has ever suggested that before, but it is fully within the rules. You, you don't have to go back with it. You can send the machine back. Why are you sending the machine back? Well, I'm hoping that I can cash in on my trip in the last second of my life. Can I do that? I mean, yeah. I don't see any reason why not. So okay. you're about to die. So you then, what, go back, you send the machine back to do what? No, so I would get, so in, when I, it was the last second of my death, and I'm uh, ideally sitting somewhere in a pocket of sunshine the way that the happiest cat you've ever seen does. You know, when there's like a, just a shard of sunshine. I'm in that and I'm looking and maybe there's a few beautiful cockatoos in the sky above me and I'm holding the hands of the people I love. Um, and then just as I take my last breath, this, the time machine scoops me up and takes me right back to the beginning of my own life. And I do it all over again. And I send the machine back to wherever it needs to meet the next person. But um, I get to do it. I get to do all the things that I didn't get to do in this life, that I just ran out of time or I made the wrong choice or whatever. And I, I get to apply most of the wisdom that I got in the first version. But, um, yeah, just, just run it again. Maybe just like drive it like you stole it as well. Just fucking run it into the ground. That'd be fun. Thank you so much for doing this today. We've spoken for two hours. The audience will get to hear about an hour, hopefully. <laughs> and and uh, thank you for persisting through what has been a few technical difficulties today, but it has been so lovely to talk to you on the show and I really appreciate that you did it. 